Hello everybody and welcome to Typhoon Talks, brought to you by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. Um, I'm David Powell and I head the business's uh, Asia Pacific office. Um, this podcast is the monthly news review, so for those of you who have listened before, it's a very conversational um, view of things that we found interesting in, uh, in, the, in the past month in, in the news. So. Um, this month we're going to be looking at three things, um, the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica saga, we're going to be looking at Uber's issue with autonomous vehicle accidents uh, in Arizona, and continue a theme from the last couple of weeks, we're looking at North Korea and um, Kim Jong-un's uh, visit to China in the train. So with me today um, are uh, Kelly, Hi. Uh, Becky, Hello. And, and our usual presenter uh, Chen. Hello everyone. So we're going to kick off um, with the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica saga. Um, so Kelly, this is something that you've been looking at. Why don't you give us like the, the 30 seconds of you know, why it's important and what's happened? Yeah, definitely. So I'm assuming most of us have been following the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica scandal in the news. It's all very troubling as avid Facebook users ourselves. And while there, a lot of the political side is, of course, very interesting with Mark Zuckerberg appearing in front of the Senate recently, it's much more relevant, I think, to the world on the whole, what the ramifications will be, what the future regulations will be, how corporations will try to m maintain consumer trust, and what we can do as consumers to protect our data and our privacy. So obviously people have, you know, Facebook's gone through a few highs and lows in terms of people, you know, loving it and hating it and, you know, there's always been the sort of the scaremongers who go, oh, you know, you, you know, Facebook's harvesting your data and selling it on for, you know, to all the advertisers and everybody else has gone, yeah, but, you know, I'm okay with it. This though seems to have changed the, the tone of the situation quite heavily. Do we think that this is uh, going to be the um, sort of the instigator of um, increased or significant regulation for companies operating on the web? Well, I think we're definitely already starting to see this in Europe with the incoming GDPR regulations um, that are well protecting EU citizens in terms of what data corporations are allowed to store and what security regulations they have to have in place to make sure that the data isn't stolen or misused. But I think on a larger scale, we're definitely seeing greater consumer awareness of what is being used, uh, what your data is being used for, especially as every year you get a few of these cases where data has been released and then consumers aren't quite happy with what's going on. So last year you have a Strava fitness app that released a map of the world with all their uh, app users. and because of the tracking software, you were able to see uh, US military bases, which was an unknown consequence of what the data was gonna be used for. So a bit different to ill intentions, um, st stealing data or harvesting for other reasons. But then you also see it with uh, Grindr recently sent their data off to be, um, it was to, to optimize it and it was encrypted, but part of the data that was sent was HIV status. Mm -hmm. And when users of the app found out, they were very outraged, of course, even with assurances of the data has been encrypted. Now that we have quite a few of these scandals following year after year, it's not as, you don't trust that assurance as much when a company says your data is safe because you, you still have the possibility it gets out. And is one of the issues that we kind of always click on agree without reading any of the terms and conditions. Um, whereas 
if we were to be writing, if we would have a written agreement where we have to fill in on a hard copy form in you know paper and pen and then sign it, do you think there's um, you know when people are clicking agree, do you think they just don't worry about the consequences because they just it's they really want the instant gratification of what they're clicking to agree to so they can get access to something, whereas so it's more of a just get me onto the platform, whereas if you have to do a sort of more physical conscious signature and read through then people are going to pay more attention to it. I think it, it might have an effect on analog data because one of the big complaints that you see now amongst consumers is that yes we are clicking those user agreements but they're also very difficult to understand they use a lot of uh, specific lingo and they're very long and it's not easy to read it's tiny font as well so part of the move for better regulations and transparency is also clarity because yeah. if the user can understand the agreement they're more likely to be trusting of the company and then more trusting of what the data might be used for uh, so that will possibly have ramifications on the paper world especially if the incoming generations are a lot more tech-based and they come to expect this clarity from the agreements they're signing up to almost every day and we obviously, Mark Zuckerberg testified in front of the Senate. Are we expecting to see more um, people, you know, throwing away their um, polo necks and donning a shirt and tie to, to head to Washington? Do you think there'll be more people following that same trail to have to justify, particularly around Silicon Valley and tech, about having to justify their actions, particularly around customer data? If there's another scandal, definitely. Um, but with the incoming regulations, and I would assume then the US would be soon to follow with how mm. much attention they're paying to Facebook and Zuckerberg, that the governments are going to try and intervene uh, with in regards to data and even fake news as well. You see that in mm. the elections in Malaysia coming up, they have banned fake news. And I don't know how they're going to enforce that, but that's uh, the direction some people, uh, some countries are taking, and I think as consumers become more aware, because Facebook is, I think, probably the app that's most applicable to everyone yeah. around the world, across generations and countries, that if we expect it from the companies, maybe the corporations will take that first step to try and get ahead of the trend. So you see this with, I think, Google, LinkedIn. Um, Instagram, so lots of other big apps have already in the days or the weeks following the scandal, they made sure to update their user agreements or make them more clear. We're getting a bunch of notifications now in our email inboxes about please agree to these new yep. user agreements, make sure you've actually read it through. And they're a lot more holding your hand along, uh, along the process rather than just the box at the bottom. And do we think that this is then going to be, we've got, you know, there's going to be, um, you know, we're on a spectrum here between sort of libertarianism and censorship. At the moment, everybody's going, oh, the internet's free, resource that should be available and open to everyone. It doesn't really matter what anybody posts on there. Do you think this is going to be the start of a, of a shift back towards, you know, more seeking permission and therefore greater regulation and potentially even more sen even, even um, censorship? Do you think that's going to happen or do you think there will be a more, you know, principled, light regulation approach to this? I think there will be a uh, a staggered approach in terms of what data is being considered. So they have there have been a few studies carried out on how consumers view their own data mm. and how concerned they would be if that data was shared. So of course financial data comes at the top as does health data. But 
spending habits or your Instagram likes. Uh, there's not as much concern about them, and, and this is across generations as well. Yeah. Um, and it shows that there is a scale of how much the consumer expects. And then in terms of what countries can do, or what regulations can do, regulations can only go so far, really. Yeah. So there have been some interesting proposals as well. You get, of course, the move for greater transparency, which might seem a bit like an empty promise as well. Yeah. Um, but there's also a very interesting idea of moving away from the free data aspect, not in a sense of having paid subscription services that exclude people um, who aren't able to pay for the service, and then they're the ones bombarded with ads in a sense of having a data as labor paradigm instead where you are paid for the data you contribute and the amount of hours you spend making that data is and treat it as billable hours. The idea is that you're incentivized to create more accurate data which hopefully in return should mean more personalized targeted media for yourself as well so hopefully the engagement process also improves. So it's a virtuous circle kicking in effectively. Yeah that's uh, a proposed paradigm it's I don't think we've seen the last of Silicon Valley people wearing suits in Washington. Um, but thank you very much for that. Um, so Becky, let's have a look at, well, staying in the US for the moment, um, and particularly looking at um, uh, Uber's recent challenges um, in Arizona. Can you give us the, 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 the quick overview of, of, of what's happened? Yeah, sure. So towards the end of March, Uber had their first fatality uh, involving an autonomous vehicle. It's the third fatality to occur with AVs, but it's the first in which it was a pedestrian who was hit. Um, in the other two which have um, happened to Tesla vehicles, it's been the driver uh, who's died. Um, so the press has obviously been having a field day about machines killing people, and I think it's really interesting how that's being treated differently to you know, normal hit and run or normal um, pedestrian accidents. So I mean, uh, I think that's the, the key question for, for me is, probably millions of people get killed around the world in car accidents, um, which predominantly will be down to some human error in one or other of the vehicles or somebody using the road in the, in the wrong way. Um, and yet we're getting a bit worried about one or two people getting killed in the testing of autonomous vehicles. Um, do you think that there is an ethical issue that or different standards are being applied to where we're developing a new market using new technology as opposed to you know, the legacy technology of an, an old car where you know I drive it and I try to be as careful as I can but if there's an accident there's an accident um, do you think that there are two different standards in play here so I think there's kind of several levels to that um, I mean the estimate is that 90% of car involved accidents are because of human error um, so I think the potential for AVs in the future to really drastically reduce deaths uh, on the road is massive um, but I think partly because you know dramatic headlines sell, the press has really gone to town on this one. Mm. But I think also it's a shift in perception in terms of is it it's an accident potentially if someone, a different human kills you because they sneeze or something. It feels potentially more scary if it's a machine, especially with the potential of a future where these are the only way we can travel. If we, the idea that we have no control over their movements, I think is quite scary and I can see that being different. But I think it will definitely involve a shift in the way that human pedestrians interact with roads. If you can no longer hope that there'll be a person who's looking out for the unexpected, it's a machine that's, I think, always going to be programmed, to, to a certain extent at least, um, to rely on its previous experiences. 
and and how it's programmed to react as yeah, well. So exactly. it can only operate within a certain set of parameters. In this instance, um, uh, Uber settled very very quickly, um, which I completely understand. And it's kind of let's they probably pay a lot of money and just move on as quickly mm. as we can. But do we see you know this is obviously a very very fast adopting industry, fast changing industry. Do we think that incidents like this will set the autonomous vehicle trajectory back a bit, or do we think it's just going to continue relentless? And unfortunately, this is just part of the price we have to pay for having, you know, overall and globally much safer roads in the next, you know, 20, 25 years. So I think the settlement is particularly interesting. It was reportedly a very large amount, which means there'll be no public inquiry into what happened with the technology. So several other firms, so I think um, Waymo, which is Google's AV program, um, they've run the video footage that was released of the incident on their software, and they claim their cars would have stopped. So I think potentially for Uber, this might be a slowdown. They suspended all of their AVs as soon as the fatality happened, and they are still not back on the road. Um, and they, there's sort of evidence that suggests they were lagging further behind competitors beforehand as well with more interventions per mile. Um, and do you think there's going to lead to standardisation then of sort of AV technology? Because at the moment I can see a situation if somebody's running on, you know, Uber, a car's running on Uber's technology, another one's running on Waymo, another one's running on, they're not all set to the same calibration. So you can't have a standardised approach. You know, if one car is coming in at, you know, you know, two come coming at a right angle to each other, and one's programmed to take a void, and and one isn't. Then you're definitely going to have an accident. Is there is do we expect to see common standards being applied so that rather than at the moment we're in a kind of it's a wild west. Everybody's trying to sort of make as much progress as they can as quickly as they can because then they get first move advantage into the marketplace. But do we expect to see some sort of standardisation of technology come out? I think there's in terms of the technology different people are using different quality radars and yeah. things um, and I think there probably will be some standardization especially or if only because the press coverage has suggested that some manufacturers are using better radar mm -hmm. and that that would have stopped this fatality um, that in itself is a big incentive because you're relying on public opinion to not force really stringent legislation um, but I think across the board um, they're already standardizing what they program the cars to do just mm -hmm. because to be able to interact with human drivers on the road, they need to know kind of what the median response would be mm. um, and what the norm is. But I think it'd be very dangerous if it converged on only one provider. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, linking back to Kelly's discussion of da data, if you have one company that's providing all of these AVs for everyone, yeah. they know exactly where you are every given time, what trips everyone makes, what they do, and they control who can get access to the cars as well. And that monopolies, be... monopolies are never good for the market. Yeah. The only people who lose out are consumers. Mm. Yeah. And so, what do we what do we think in terms of you know, obviously it's a it's a tragic incident, um, but you know, from what we've just been talking about, it seems as though we're expecting um, things to just you know, carry on. Obviously, this it's a learning experience um, from a number of different dimensions, but we're not really seeing that there's going to be any significant change to the way that you know, AEVs are, are developing. So a week after the accident, California opened up the option to apply for a license to test AVs with no drivers, and they still had applicants, though Uber notably didn't apply. Um, I think it will continue if only because so much investment has been ploughed into these things that no company is going to let it rest. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a slowdown and a rethink. Um, in terms of where we test them, how we test them, and what the communities they're being tested in, what level of 
agreement we have to get for them to participate in it as well. So coming on to that, do you think that then you know, AV companies might look to go to countries where there's less like being sued if people die? I think potentially. I think the problem they've had so far and the problem potentially with that is that you need really good roads and you need really specific weather for it to work. Mm. Um, so currently um, Uber tests in Toronto but they're much less successful there because they can't still, they, have, they yeah. have trouble with the rain and if anyone's ever been to Toronto yeah. just that's not going to work. Um, <laughs> And in terms of road quality, I'm struggling to think of other uh, no places jump, are jumping to mind. I was thinking maybe, maybe the Middle East because it's got, uh, yeah. it's got good, you know, they're not... No weather. But then well, it's very... It's, it's very, it's, yeah. it's very, as long as you can get cars yeah. off right in very hot what conditions. What they need to learn more is they've got cars that can drive really well down really straight long highways. Yeah. And, you know, they can deal with a couple of bends that come in the road. Yeah. But when you need them to be on, you, know, you need them to be on intersections mm. and with pedestrians and other cars, um, at least in the US, you know, you, jaywalking is a really small thing yeah. it's quite easy to set rules whereas you know potentially other places so it's interesting about the weather and the sensitivity of the current equipment is that that then obviously california I mean, one of the reasons why california or la in particular you know grew as a, a place of the film industry is because it's in the middle of the desert and has no rain or very very mm-hmm. little rain does that mean then um that we're going to see av market spring up only in situ in in or likely to sit up um, spring up only in cities which conform to the a minimum set of requirements for the technology i guess it depends on how far the technology can go yeah. it's improved massively um in recent years but i mean i think still that weather isn't perfect one of the tesla fatalities happened when a large white van pulled across a lane mm. and the car thought it was the same color as the very bright sky so there's no perfect space, and I, I can't imagine you know, Uber's quite an aggressive company. I can't imagine them not really pushing to expand into other markets than those on the equator. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> or Australia, perhaps. That's got nice weather. Yeah, that's true. I think when I think it's a, it's a very interesting space. I know it's it's always somewhere. Um, you know, I think going back to, to Kelly, Facebook is now a mature organisation compared to what we're seeing seeing in uh, the AV space. This is definitely an interesting one to watch. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in the future, and hopefully, um, you know, there will be you know these. I think it's interesting that then obviously there have been three fatalities in AV cars, and that makes all the news. And yet, you know, the number of people who get killed on California's or Arizona's roads on a daily basis, I would think, would be substantially higher than that. But yet, it's such a relatively small number of people. Mm-hmm. Those incidents making news. Hopefully, those will decrease, and uh, and so will the, the yeah, accidents. Yeah, it's a hundred well. deaths a day in the US. Hundred deaths a day for accidents. So. That's amazing. All yeah. right. Well, let's um, thank you very much for that. Let's go to um, our Asia expert um, Chen and continue the theme of um, of what's going on um, in North Korea. So, to Chen, I believe that um, Kim Jong Un um, left Korea for the first time since he took power. Right. So it's. It happened in the end of last month, and for the very first time in the past seven years, he left his country and visited China. And I think it signals his confidence in holding on to power, and also it signals um, some changes, potential changes in his foreign policy with other countries. And this trip is right before his other two meetings with President of South Korea and the United States. And so do you think there's obviously dictators don't like leaving their home countries because no. it's a very easy way for them to become usurped. Um, so as you say, this is obviously a, you know, a big 
thing about confidence, but is there any significance in him going to China, um, or is it that's the only place he could have gone anyway? Because um, it would have been very unlikely that he could have gone, he would have chosen anywhere else to go to. It's definitely not the only place he can go right now, because um, South Korea president and United States yeah. president already agreed to meet with him. Um, but I think he visited China first for two reasons. One is that South, North Korea and China have a long-term friendship, 70 years, and it was established by Kim's grandfather. Mm. Um, his grandfather visited China in the 60s and signed the um, North Korea, Sino-North Korea Friendship Treaty, which was renewed by his father later on. Um, this treaty is very symbolic, it's not practical at all, mm. but it shows the friendship between the two countries. And since Kim Jong-un came into power, he never visited China, which is very different from his father and his um, grandfather. Mm. So since last year, China started a trade sanction against North Korea and had a great impact on their economy. Uh, we saw a 62% slump in its import and 16% in its ex export. Mm. So I think that shows the significance of China to Kim's um, regime. And you sort of say that the friendship treaty is more symbolic yeah. than having any practical purpose. So this visit, is that symbolic? Or, or does it also have a practical element to it as well? I think that will lead to the second purpose of this trip mm. at this timing. So it's definitely not just symbolic. Um, and we don't know what kind of consensus has been achieved during this meeting. Um, and we don't know what kind of um, follow-up actions Kim is going to take. Mm. But at this time, um, he's definitely he definitely wants to use this trip as a bargaining power with, uh, for the following two meetings. Um, he's going to meet South Korea president this month and potentially Donald Trump next month. Mm. So he's going to use the Sino-North Korea relations to talk to the other two presidents. Mm. And it, I mean, obviously, as you said, you know, he's going to go to, go to South Korea next, um, and then there's obviously going to be the meeting with Trump. Everything is a bilateral meeting with Kim at the center of it, effectively. Is, do, is that still part of his sort of you know, strategy, do we think, is to you know, keep people guessing in terms of what's happening next? Or do you know, we've talked previously about whether there's a, a new trajectory, whether you know, this really is a new face of North Korea, or as we've seen in the past, there's some positive noises come out of North Korea, and then very, very quickly we're back to the usual behaviours which are generally trying to annoy the Japanese by firing missiles over them. Um, you know, do we think this is something that's uh, the, the new normal, or, or should we still remain cautious? Uh, I think Kim has already demonstrated a new side mm. of him and of, no of North Korea as well. Um, he, this is going to be an ongoing talk. It's not going to be once off with uh, two presidents and then uh, we, we won't be able to see any big changes from the North, North Korea side. Um, but uh, this is going to be an ongoing talk. Um, and for North Korea, I think domestically they're trying to promote economic liberalization. And on a high level, it's going to be continuous political repression. Mm. Um, but with other foreign countries, Kim wants to open up the conversation using this trip as a start. And so do you think we could start to see, talk about economic liberalization, do you think this is China in 1979? Do you think this is the beginning of the first set of market reforms that could be brought in in, um, in, in North Korea? And therefore, this is something that 
you know, Kim will be looking to China to you know follow the model that's uh, that's been followed there. Um, possibly, <laughs> it's um, it's possible because Kim is quite ambitious yeah. and uh, he's quite proactive in both domestic domestically and um, diplomatically. Mm. So um, I think possibly he's going to open up the market a lot more, and it's it might follow his communist brother yeah. and to do the same thing. And it, obviously he's taken power at a relatively young age as well, so there's no imperative yeah. for him to accomplish great things in the next three to five years. Um, there could be a series of five-year plans. Yeah. In, in he has a lot of five years to plan for. Um, so this is, it, you know, at the moment, if we're just seeing the, the initial steps, it's something that this could be a long-term strategy that is... You know, there's obviously going to be some forward progress, and then there's going to be some setbacks as well. But yeah, you know, I, I guess the question for us is, you know, whether we think this is the the beginning of that sustained transformation of North Korea. I think when Kim just came into power, it was quite sudden because of his father's death. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he has been in a survival model, survival mode for a yeah. long time. Um, I think people have no expectation for him. Yeah. Um, but gradually, he wanted to take a more strategic approach um, and introduce some real reform domestically. So I think he's quite ambitious. He's definitely ambitious. It's just a question of whether there's something to be ambitious you know, with, whether he can make, I guess, turn that ambition into, into reality. But as I guess, you know, this seems to be a topic that we're going to keep coming back to, probably on a monthly basis, um, sure. I, I'd guess. Um, so which is a good place to end up. So thank you very much to, uh, to Becky and Kelly um, for our new interns. This is the, the, uh, the first news review that they've been part of, and we've got at least one more um, whilst they're with us. And obviously, thank you very much to Chen for your ongoing expertise uh, relating to North Korea. Um, so that concludes this episode of, of Typhoon Talks. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Typhoon Buzz, iTunes and SoundCloud at Typhoon Talks for uh, po- podcast episodes. Also, please come and visit our website at uh, typhoonconsulting.com for more industry point of views. We hope you'll join us again next time. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye.